0: Short-term commitment is the best sort of bait on the hook. If you get up and say, hey, you need to be part of a small group. It'll be like a spiritual family. You'll do life with these people. You'll confess sins and cry together. You have just alienated most of your space. Most of the people in your church are not signing up for that. But if you say, hey, uh, sign up for this thing, it's going to last eight weeks, 12 weeks, you know. It gives people an on-ramp and an exit ramp. If things get weird, they can leave without offending anybody.
1: Welcome to the transforming discipleship podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com a podcast designed for church leaders who are actively seeking to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I'm your host. My name is Oliver Hersey. And today we're joined by Bill Search and we're learning today, how are we going to get better as ministry leaders at inspiring participation in our congregations, our communities for small group participation and discipleship. So Bill, welcome back. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Oliver. How are you doing today?
1: I can't complain. I can't complain. I'm excited about this topic. So we're going to dive right in because I, as a pastor of discipleship, I'm always curious to hear from others. How do we inspire and pique interest among the parishioners and the people we are serving? So we want to wrestle with that. I'm excited to have you on because I always learn a lot from you when I'm talking to you and I enjoy our conversations. Here's the context. You know the context. Well, our ministry leaders know it well because they're they're living in it, but we are serving Jesus in a variety of contexts and many of us are struggling with discipleship disengaged or disinterested and disconnected people. And I would say that even some people listening perhaps to this show right now maybe are flat out tired and they're burned out. They feel like maybe they're banging their head against the wall. No one seems interested in the next thing we're trying to advertise, the slides, the pulpit announcement, all of it just seems like white noise. And so I'm wondering, you know, we walk by the recycling bins, at least in our church, we see a lot of flyers, and then we just hand it out in the morning. And they're like in the trash already. It's like, okay, well, that was waste of time. So so Bill, I wanna learn from you. Like what what do we do right now to, to pique interest, to inspire people to participate in discipleship opportunities and endeavors, maybe it's joining a small group or serving, whatever it might be. Like how do we do it? Well, how have you done it in your experience?
0: Well, I think the first thing you just highlighted something important for everyone listening to know. It is hard work. That anyone who tells you, Oh, this could be easy, piece of cake they're lying to you. It is hard work to get people into groups. If we really, truly believe, and we do, this is spiritually important stuff, then we have to recognize there's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be forces that are trying to undermine this. So get that clear in our minds. There's no That makes no me feel so much bullet. better.
1: That makes me feel so oh, much yes. better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of job security in a way because it, <laughs> it, it, nobody would sign up to volunteer over and over to have the thankless job of, of, of getting people in the groups. Now, having said all that, there are some things through the last particularly several years that I've observed that, that have sort of worked across the country. And they have worked in varying degrees in different churches, but they have worked. The first thing I've noticed over the last 10, 15 years— is the short-term commitment is the best sort of bait on the hook. If you get up and say, hey, you need to be part of a small group. It'll be like a spiritual family. You'll do life with these people. You'll confess sins and cry together. You have just alienated most of your space. Most of the people in your church are not signing up for that. But if you say, "Hey, uh, sign up for this thing. It's going to last eight weeks, twelve weeks. You know, it gives people an on-ramp and an exit ramp. If things get weird, they can leave without offending anybody. It's uh, it's imperative in busy schedules today to give people those sorts of parameters." And then you can be honest and say, hey, we really hope you get to know each other and want to stay together, which would be fine. But if you don't, no no harm, no foul. And so short-term commitment's better than long-term commitment. And just getting just getting people to sign up. That's the first thing I've observed.
1: I think about churches today, and I think about some of the churches that we've all experienced. I have not actually seen that a lot of times. I see things, it's like it's like sign up for this, and the on-ramp is there, and then there is no exit signs or off ramp, even announced or or down the road. So you you kind of sign up for this like this mysterious never ending thing.
0: Yeah, this is why we have a hard time getting people to volunteer. Hey, would you sign your life away? We'd be better off. In fact, my church oftentimes will say, Hey, try before you buy. Try out this thing. Try out this thing, just to get people in the door. And then lo and behold, it works. They like it and they stay. So the short term better than long term. The other is a specific felt need type of content. That is uh, one of the studies that probably most of your listeners will have heard of is one called Rooted, and it is kind of burned through the country right now, and is very popular because it answers kind of a question of like, you know, what is the core essence of being a Christian? You know, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? That is a question a lot of people have because we get it all murky, and we we add so many pieces to it that it's very difficult to synthesize it down to its uh, simplest form and rooted attempts to do that. There are other programs like that out there. I'm just using that as an example. But the specific topic, why do we all, you know, most of us are of a certain vintage did purpose-driven life. Why? Because the opening question is, what on earth am I here for? Almost everybody's curious about that question. So it it tickles uh, something that is alive inside of all of us. That topic thing is key.
1: You're, what you're saying, I, I've actually seen recently in our ministry context here in the Chicago area. We have a in our church. We wrote a curriculum. if We call it membership, but but we call it all in. Basically, are you all in on this journey of discipleship? It's a five weeks. It's five sessions, and we've actually run it in five week formats as well as like intense weekend formats. So you can take it over five sessions over five weeks or. Like three sessions on a Friday evening, two sessions on a Saturday morning, or however we break it up. But what we've done is very purpose focused. It is about what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to be involved here at Calvary Church? And and then intricate to that is your own story, because your own story now is becoming intertwined with the larger story that God has been knitting together. And so it's a great space for people to get to know each other, get to know our leadership, as well as get to know the mission and vision of our church. It's been thriving in all of our campuses. We seem to not be able to offer the course enough, which is a good problem to have. So I I think what your point, too, on the purpose component, I've seen it work.
0: I think, you know, you, you check two of the boxes, and I think the way you're describing all in, at your church, I'll bet it it toggles the third box too, which is that everybody's doing it. The more that the whole church is kind of in like, hey, at our church, we really want everybody to do, in your case, all in, or my friend's church, it's rooted in our, our church here. It's a program we call centered. And we say it enough that, hey, we want everybody who calls this church home to do this. And it kind of feels like, well, if everybody's doing it, that sounds like a good idea. I don't want to be left out or I don't want to be not a team player, so I better do the thing. And so the more that you can kind of get that culture of everybody's doing this material or going through this process, the more likely they are to do it. So, you know, just you come back to, you know, short term, a topic that intrigues the, you know, the mind or interests the mind, and then everybody's doing it. That Those three things seem to help a church move along the way. Now, the challenge, of course, is what happens when, when you don't have those things? What happens when, when your culture, you know, when, when you have diversity of opportunities in your culture, really that third issue becomes an issue. And so I'm curious what you think of this one, Oliver, is what do you do? When it's not really an essential core part of the church, maybe the listener here is passionate about getting groups in their church, but the leadership is eh, take it or leave it. In terms, what you ha- in terms
1: of just having groups in general, is that what
0: yeah, yeah? Group groups are fine. It's just not something we care that much about. What do you do in those situations?
1: You're you're bumping up against leadership in that regard, and and the the, the whole vision of the church. That is a tough question. I guess I have not. A- I've not really experienced that setting because I've usually experienced churches wanting to have small group presence in their environment of some sort. But I guess if I were in that situation, um, hmm, yeah, I think I think what I have found to be the greatest. The greatest way forward in any instance where you're bumping up against something like that is to have conversations that are candid and honest and uh, to sit down and take take perhaps leadership out to coffee and to just sit down and kind of explain and express why you feel small groups are so vital and critical to discipleship and ministry and, and hopefully cast vision. Um, it's, it's sort of odd to think about a parishioner or a ministry volunteer casting vision for their leadership, but I get that sometimes that has to happen, and hopefully leadership would be responsive to that. But I think being patient and having those conversations over and over again, candidly and honestly, are key. I, I don't know.
0: I think that's a brilliant answer. I do. I think that you struck a, a tone there of respect for the leadership you sit down with whoever's in charge or whoever's been commissioned to be the leader and say, hey, this is the vision I think we could do. What do you think? And if they say, look, it's great you're doing it, then bloom where you're planted. Start, get something going and do it respectfully. And don't dismiss the other things that are out there, but just start with the people that would respond positively to it and make a change and, and see what comes of it. Lots of seeds and lots of churches were planted like that 20, 30 years ago, and today those are churches of small groups, and nobody knows any difference. Everybody's doing it in the church now, but many churches that have a heritage to them, they started out with a person who said, you know, I read this book on small groups. I like, I had this one experience in small groups, and I think we should try it here. And and a lot of churches, pastors, go, well, if you, if you can dream it and we'll pray for it and we'll volunteer your time for it, you can do it. I just think of that person who's listening, who doesn't necessarily have the full range of support that maybe you and I've enjoyed in various ministries. They can make a difference wherever they're at with the possibilities in front of them. So I liked your answer. That's a good one, Oliver.
1: Absolutely. And they they should buy the coffee, I think, right? They, they Buy your leader That's the coffee, right. and then, coffee. then your leader's good already coffee. listening.
0: They're like, oh, okay, good. Yeah. So.
1: You know, we think about Jesus, right? Jesus is, is who we're all aspiring to to walk like, to follow in the discipleship process. I think about how Jesus invited and inspired people around him to engage in transformative, life-changing discipleship. I mean, that's what he was doing. He called his first followers, the fishermen, the tax collectors, and he, he invited them and inspired all kinds of people, men and women, to, to do and to follow uh, his way of life. So, What types of stories come to your mind when you think about Jesus's life and his way of inspiring and piquing interest? Like what can we learn from Jesus and his methodology for inspiring people to enter into the discipleship journey as we think through it, I mean, does anything come to mind, Bill, and, and has anything yeah. particularly shaped my, you?
0: My favorite uh, story involving just sort of the beginning of this process is John 1, you know, when Jesus evidently, if we understand the timeline, he's baptized by John the Baptist, goes out, is tempted, comes back into John the Baptist's camp, and John goes, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God, he's taking away the sins of the world. And Andrew, and we presume John, he's not named, two disciples of John the Baptist switch teams right there. Yeah. And they go to Jesus and say, hey, they don't even know what to say. They say, where are you staying? And he says, uh, come and see, come and see. That's it. It's just a simple come and see. And so the Bible tells us they spend like the rest of the day with him. And the first thing Andrew does is evangelizes his father, Peter. He goes and finds Peter and says, hey, we found the Messiah. And so then Peter comes up, and, and so there's just this interplay. It's almost a tease how little we get to hear from Jesus. I mean, we have four Gospels, but it's still, we come away wishing we had more. But there was evidently enough interaction there that he drew men and women in. People wanted more, and it must have been something in the tone. It must have been something in the interactions. It must have been something in the quality. I mean, the Bible does say he taught with authority unlike everybody else around yeah. at the time. So there's, there's just something in the way that he interacted with people. He invited them into deeper layers. And the ones that responded, we know their names. There are plenty who didn't and we don't.
1: There's yeah, there's something uncanny about Jesus where he there's this fragrance about him that people are like, What is what is it that you are and are about? And they and he drew them in. And I think that same fragrance is offered to all of us as ministry leaders as we seek to walk like he walked and and, and embody his way of life as best as we can. I think that gives off a fragrance, and that in and of itself is compelling and I think peaks into yes. like why how did you just forgive that person? And when they did that to you, like, how do you, how come you're so generous with, with what you have? When people start to see these things, I think amongst their leaders and in the, in the midst of these small groups, I think that becomes such a compelling force of like, I want to be around that. Like, give me more of that. What is it that that's inside of you that, that empowers you to, to live that way? Cause that's an interesting and beautiful and powerful way to, to live. And, and I think that's why, you know, I think it's as Nathaniel or Philip, I don't remember who it is, but he's, Jesus can see into this man's life and he knows that where he's sitting and he's under the fig tree and he says, I, 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 you see me. And the same with the Samaritan woman yeah. at the well. He knows everything I've ever done. He's just what she tells all the people. Like Jesus has this way about him that is just, it just draws people
0: in. And we may not have obviously the insight that God incarnate had. But what we can have that he had that doesn't take divinity in order to do is see the potential in other people, and he he saw this. Now he saw Peter, and he says, "You're Simon. You will be Petrus. You will be Peter." And to to the ancient scholars' knowledge, that's the first use where rock gets drawn in and becomes a person's nickname or name. There's no other instance that we're aware of in the in the ancient writings where anyone was called. Petrus. That name becomes a first-person name by Jesus' name. So if you're listening, your name's Peter, it's pretty cool. Jesus came up with your name. But what he saw was you're going to be really a stable foundation on which others will build ministry. You know. So he saw something in Peter. Now, obviously, we don't have that prophetic voice. We can't look at a person and go, you know, you're, you're unreliable right now, but you're going to be very reliable. But what we can see in a person is potential. They potentially, if they give their heart to the Lord and walk as he walked, there is potential in that person. And, and so there is something in the hopefulness of Christ that he breathed hope into people. And yeah, he was very challenging and he was confrontive and prophetic but he also drew people in because they came away with this strong sense i i can live up to something if he's if he's with me and so it is with us if christ is in the midst of it there's great potential to me this is the big this is one of the big things we get in the gospels is we get this image that people who came up and were close to christ there was something if they let him that they would do in his life. And certainly, he let Judas choose another path, but there's something powerful in the dynamic of of that a group of people that were drawn in. And Jesus wasn't easy on them. He was tough on them. And I think that's the same for us, too. There's a lesson in that, that he was tough on people. We want people to have a toughness on us, too. We don't we don't need more than a couple grandmas in our life. We need we need some drill instructors too. And so we see that too. We could go on and on, but for the sake of time, I better cut my cup. No, this has
1: been I think this has been really helpful. I think Bill, your thoughts on in terms of how do you peak interest? You know, what's helpful? Well, obviously the short term, on ramps, off ramps, clearly defined, helpful. The purpose of the discipleship endeavor and opportunity is crucial. And then the the big rally of like, I think of something we did here in Chicago and I know they did it down in Texas, the, the Explore God series where everybody's doing it. Let's do that. But at the same time, we look at Jesus and one of the things that Jesus was so compelling, he sees people. He sees people, and I think we can see people too. When we see people, I think that inspires them to say, oh, you believe in me? You think I can do this? Yes, we believe that. Yes, we think this is helpful for you. You've given us a lot to think about, Bill. This has been a pleasure. I appreciate it, and uh, we appreciate your insights when it comes to participation and discipleship opportunities. Um, We want to thank those of you who tuned into this episode of the Transforming Discipleship podcast. This is a podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com, and again, you can visit the website, smallgroups.com, to get books. Bible studies and training tools as you continue to build your ministries and your small group ministries. So until next time, take care.